Dr. Jacqueline Duget. Welcome to What is Black podcast that focuses on issues important to raising healthy and thriving Black children and adolescents. As a pediatrician and mom of color, I saw the need to create an additional educational platform to reach parents raising kids of color to address issues and challenges that are not always discussed in the pediatrician's office. Thank you for joining us for this week's conversation. All right, welcome everyone to this episode of What is Black. Today's guest is author Jewel Parker Rhodes. Um, Jewel is the author of Ninth Ward, winner of a Coretta Scott King honor, Sugar winner of Jane Addams Children's Book Award and Ghost Boys, a New York Times bestseller in both hardcover and paperback editions. She's also written many award-winning novels for adults. When she's not writing, Jewel visits schools to talk with her talk about her books and teaches writing at Arizona State University. So today we're going to talk to Jewel about her new uh, middle grade book, Black Brother, Black Brother. So welcome, Jewel. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Awesome. So, Jewel, before we get started um, diving into the book, if you can tell us a little bit about your book from your perspective. Uh, my book, like all my books, um, is pretty layered in a way that I come at it with a lot of angles, and I like to have a book that's rich, so if somebody wants to reread it or a teacher wants to teach it. So I'd say first and foremost, the book is about colorism, you know, about how the skin tone of someone's skin can determine how they are treated in this world, how racism and racial bias affects two brothers one who's light-skinned and dark-skinned, and how the outcomes of their lives are impacted by that. So that's one thing. The second thing is how, in my story, Dante, who is the darker-skinned brother, because of his dark skin, becomes subject to being arrested by his by a school police officer and carried away by the police. That, in other words, you know, that whole school-to-prison pipeline that children of color get caught in starting in toddler years all the way through high school, that becomes part of his history, too, simply because of their distrust of him as a young black man, and they see him as really someone who he is not, namely a violent, you know, a disruptive person. And then the third thing is about sort of our culture, just how besides having this racial bias that we have to contend with in terms of individual spirits, like I have to remember to check myself and not be affected by any bias, and I want everybody to do the same. But we also confront a culture that all the time is like washing everything white. And I remember learning 30 years ago that Alexander Dumas, the guy who wrote The Three Musketeers, The Count of Monte Cristo, he wasn't white. He was black, and his dad was a count and a general and the most famous black fencer, you know, of all time during his era. And so just the idea that, you know, fencing, I always thought it was for certain kind of people, just like certain, you know, other sports might be certain kind of rich white people, when in fact, there's a rich history of people of color being fantastic at fencing and fantastic at it as a sport. So colorism in terms of personal life, in terms of my characters' lives, in terms of the culture we live in, and wanting to stop the school-to-prison pipeline, that's Black Brother, Black Brother. Oh, that's amazing. So I, what I was really fascinating about is, like you said, you tackle like these really complex um, cultural issues. And I was wondering 
and I think you sort of answered the question, why now? But I was wondering, why do it in a middle grade format as opposed to, I'm thinking, a YA novel? You know, <laughs> that's a great question. I have always wanted to write for youth, always. Because when I was growing up, there were no books that represented or mirrored me. And in fact, you know, I went through school all the way through a PhD, and I was never once given a book by a person of color or someone who was not of Western descent. So this hunger for representation is very important. But when I finally got the call to write for young people, I actually thought I was writing a YA book. And they said, oh, no, this is middle grade. And somehow or another, that really is my sweet spot. Um, and I, I'm surprised by it. But it, that's just that, that time of rite of passage when they're going from being the child to the adult to me is such, uh, you know, the young adult is such a valuable, vulnerable time. Um, so for me, that's just, just special. And it just seems as though that's what I can do and that's what I can do well. If we were to psychoanalyze me, <laughs> I think <laughs> it's because I don't actually remember much of my childhood, that it was very, very difficult. And there were ways in which um, growing up, I was very isolated and very alone and had to sort of learn resilience. So in some ways, by having these wonderful characters that I write about, like Dante and his brother Trey, I get to write about young people who weren't the shy, isolated kid like me, but are these these heroes and heroines who are shaking up life and being all that I want every kid today to be. So do you, do you feel in some ways, because I had the opportunity, as we talked earlier, to interview um, Brandy Colbert about some of her childhood experiences and how it may be or if she used some of her, her childhood experiences to influence her storytelling. And I, and I asked the question, is it important for a writer to have some nuggets, right, of truth in their stories? And I'm just wondering, fr hearing from your experience, your childhood experience, and, and you, and you re referenced not remembering a lot about it, does some of that, does that, does, does some of that still carry over in your writing or influence your writing in some way? In general, no. Um, you know, that I, that I have enormous memory loss. Um, and in general, my children characters are inspired by the kids I meet today. They're inspired by my kids growing up and by the friends that they met and that it is a new world. Um, the thing that always remains, though, is generally kind of an elder character or a parental figure who maybe is still connected to my grandmother and my grandmother raised me. Um, in Black Brother, it is a mother. And generally, I would have written in a grandmother or an elder. But Black Brother, Black Brother, that is about my life, but it's about my adult life of raising my own children who are biracial. So one of the things when I'm writing, I act. And I think I try to think what is the emotional truth of all these different people. And that's what I write for. So I write to make my heart bigger. And I think it does get bigger. But lots of times, I don't know what my characters are going to do. I don't, uh, I don't actually know two brothers who are as close as the two brothers in Black Brother, Black Brother. You know, it's just, but it just seems to me that in terms of love and in terms of, you know, 
writing fully demental people, how could you not love your brother? And then also carry the burden that your brother's treated differently because of the color of his skin and also carry the guilt that you're also treated differently because of the color of your skin and all those nuances. So I like thinking of all the emotional textures. And I think that comes from when I went to school for acting. Then I was probably running away from my life and acting because I needed to be sort of refreshed or made new in some way. Now I write, and I write it as a gift, I or at least try to, to remind the readers who are reading it. You see how wonderful these characters are? That's actually you, too, you know, and to make it real enough that they can feel and identify with it because it's the gift of giving them back their own beauty. Because I'm healed, relatively speaking. <laughs> I mean, and I guess, and I, and I, can, I, can, I think I can feel that through the book. Because as we talked about earlier, I think as I, you know, when I read the book, it was very, it was very fast paced, right? But it was, it was paced well. And I liked, I liked the the structure of the sentences and the format on the page. So it was like, and then even it was broken up by some of the, some, some pictures and, and smaller, smaller chapters. So I think that's kind of life, right? When you're, when you're that young in middle school, right? There's a lot of stuff going on happening very quickly and a lot of things change really quickly oh and and you're so right Jackie but one of the things that as a as a reader that I really appreciated is how you also got the nuance so the idea that it might be short or brief or the sentences are really following from the African-American oral tradition that to take the time for the beats. So it's not just that I'm afraid when I hear a police siren, but it's just a whole more complex, mm -hmm. the sense, the smell, the memories, being afraid, and yet also then being defiant. And trying to keep that complexity alive, I think, is, is the real job um, so that people feel as though they're they're, it, that they are interacting with people who potentially are very real and not just made up from words in a book. Yeah, because again, I, I definitely related to this book from either personal experiences that I that I had, right? Because as, as we discussed and I and I've shared on the podcast, so I'm by, I identify I'm identify as a black woman, but I am biracial. My brother is not, and the fact that you talked about sibling love, right? To me, that was that was made clear. When I was older in my, my late 20s, right, I found out that I was biracial. And, of course, I was devastated, right? But I talked to my brother, and the one thing that my brother said that was like a bomb to me was, you're still my sister. Uh. Right? So, and that's what I, and I think that's the, that's that kind of relationship between Trey and Dante, right? They are brothers. Yeah. No matter what, yes, you yes. know. You know, I think also, too, um, when I was a little girl, my grandmother, she would, she would say, Jewel child, there's nobody in the world better than you, and you're no better than anyone else. You're all a mixed blood stew. And that common sense of mixed heritage I've always had in part of my history. Um, actually, there's a Scots-Irishman who was a cop in the family. Um, we have a French-Canadian who actually was a bigamist. So there's a, a strand of family that's you know predominantly all white. But I always knew that I was, in a sense, mixed race, but then because of 
the law one drop of black blood, mm-hmm. you know, it made sense. And I totally identify with me being a woman of color in that sense and being a black woman. And I'm a proud black woman. But that sense of if we really all think about it or, you know, all of us are biracial and, mul- and multiracial and that sense of this is a negative comes still from slavery, mm-hmm. the one drop of black blood, the the, uh, the um, forbidding of interracial relationships, the fear of miscegenation, and all these sort of warped ideas that we have to be careful don't get handed down um, secondhand, thirdhand, or, you know, firsthand, that the right to self-identify is the greatest civil right. So what you want to be and how you want to identify uh, is so powerful. And my kids, I wanted them to have that freedom. And actually, they've been very fluid because my daughter will say, oh, I'm a black woman, even though she's the lightest of my children. And then she'll shift. And sometimes I'm biracial. And then, oh, I'm I'm black again. And my son was like post-racial when he was younger. Oh, mom. You know? And he's just like, I'm just a citizen of the world. And then as he was treated in certain ways, it's like, okay, now I understand, you know, um, that you're going to identify me as just black or African and American in a way that you mean negatively. So he then said, all right, well, I am going to identify that way too, but with all the positiveness that come from the heritage of being an African American peoples and having African American mom. But those mental gymnastics, no one should have to go through them. And yet our culture has made it so because of the crime of slavery. But, you know, identify however you wish and that's real freedom so i want to so i wanted to and i think that was that was greatly stated like as you mentioned before and i and i find your prior books as well and i need to to read some more of your books now that now that i'm hooked is that you definitely touch topics of social justice racial bias that are important topics for kids and written written in a way that gives them gives them agency so i was wondering do you feel through your work that you're helping to teach children how they can use their own voices and experiences to fight for justice? Absolutely. Every single time. Uh, so when I think in that sense, say, if you contrast what a teen can do in terms of fighting for social justice, they can go out and they protest. They can do political activism in a way that, say, maybe a 12-year-old can't. And that's where, for me, the notion of bearing witness, which plays greatly in Ghost Boys, is about that idea that you can art and in song and in speaking the truth, speaking out against injustice, that you can be a person who bears witness, and that makes you powerful. And that writing in a journal, you know, that there are a lot of ways that youth today can make a difference. I also feel that if our middle schoolers don't have a place to talk about challenging things, if they don't have a place that opens up discussions with their parents and teachers, they're going to, in a few blink of an eye years, like maybe six, be 18, you know, and ready to join the armed services, ready to go to college, ready to start a family, who knows what. And we have, will have failed them in our ability to educate them. They need to be informed, critical thinkers. And in order to do that, adults have to stop patronizing them and give them space 
to talk and consider and develop empathy and their sort of intellectual skills about what is just. Also, in terms of stopping bias, just, you know, bias, not the harsh racism, but sort of a sort of somewhat still harsh, but kind of slippery slope bias that they might even find in their own family, their own cultural institutions. If they can be alert to that, then I think that they might be the generation that really transforms the world. So yes, supposedly there are laws that help with civil rights, but getting at that bias, that sort of undertow of, you know, unconscious activity and putting an end to it. I can't wait until they raise their children. Yeah. I but but it's but it's interesting. I think um so my kids grew up in a predominantly white um school setting. Not they went to public school. Your 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 um characters Dante and Trey go to a private school, but I still think there's some parallels and I think very true to life, right? So we start out like you said with Dante being stereotyped, right, and call, the police are called, right. So, but but that's very relevant now. Yes, absolutely. So there have been some recent recent footage about I think a six year old an elementary yes. school children elementary school age child, carded handcuffed and carted away by the police. Yes, uh, there are examples of of you know young teens who have been slammed body slammed to the ground when when we had the bush era the second bush the school resource officers were given a lot of power and zero tolerance policies could allow for let's just say you were you know you were being a little sassy that day you know or you were you know you were just a, a grouch but they could use any excuse to call a resource officer or a police officer and you know it just escalates from there and then even just, I think, within this month, a college professor asked a black kid to move. And he says, well, why? I don't want to, I want to move. I'm going to sit here. And that college professor called the police on this young man. So it's happening over and over again still. And it's just appalling. It happens in public or private. It happens to like a kid who's on a school lunch menu, and this is a true story, he forgot his milk, he went back to get his milk, and they arrested him for larceny. And once our youth get into, you know, criminal justice system, they become, you know, less likely to graduate and more likely to have more interactions with the criminal justice system. So there, we talk about mass incarceration of adult men and women. You're talking about a kind of other shadow system that is really criminalizing our kids, some starting at toddler age. Um, it's, it's horrible. Somebody said to me in writing Black Brother, Black Brother, because they were at a private school and it was predominantly white environment, you know, why didn't the mother just change schools? And it was like there's such a history of schools in minority communities not preparing students because of the economic no, educa- how economic injustice leads to educational injustice. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I was poorly educated in the schools that I was raised in. So it became a matter for me. I wanted my kids to be well-educated. And where were the well-educated schools? They were in suburbia or they were in pri- private schools. But I just thought, you know, in trying to correct for one problem, 
we have to encounter other kinds of problems, such as finding identity in a multi-white environment, having them, you know, ostracize you even more because of the color of your skin. It is so complex. But I remember um, eventually we our son went through three different schools. He went through a private school, charter school, homeschool, and finally we said, you can go to any school you want to in the world, because he was learning not to love school. So we sent him, he, and we moved to, to Boston in an art school, and he flowered there. He really did. He, they, he had a wonderful time. They were so inclusive of just everybody in all kinds of different ways. But he was upset one day, and a maintenance worker called, and the dean called me, and I went over to go get evidence see what was wrong. And the maintenance worker said to me, next time, I'm going to call the police. And I nearly buckled because my teen was being, uh, you know, an anxious, upset teen. He wasn't threatening anybody. Nobody else was there. He didn't have a weapon or anything that could be construed as a weapon. And I just felt like, Oh, my God, there really is no place to make it all better. And if I don't write stories now to help make it better or help make children feel that they can make it better, I will have given up, I think, on the promise of civil rights. Um, I'm a civil rights child and we didn't get all the work done. And I'm praying that our our children will. Because I thought it would be easier in my time, but it just got more complicated and more scary. I think that sense of why do mothers of color have to worry about their sons in particular, which women get hurt too, still as they're adults, whether they're going to be safe that day. That's a real problem. And we carry that with us and it affects our life in a way that it's just it's just heartbreaking. So, um Anyway, I probably got off topic. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I mean, I mean, you're speaking to me, right? Because I, I yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. You for one thing, and then it's like, oh, there's a whole other host of problems, and it all still goes back to how the difference of skin color made it so easy for a group of people to be oppressed. Oh, we know who you are. We can see you. You have some brown in you. You're oppressed. And there are great cases, legal cases in America, where at one time the Italians were oppressed and they could change some of the well, well, there were there were court cases. I teach ethnic literature too. There were court cases where legally certain groups of people stopped being of color and became white in our legal system and how they were treated. And it was easy for that to be done because, yes, they came from a primarily white, light-skinned heritage. But it's never been easy whether, you know, whether what country you come from, if you have color and you come into American shores. Yeah, which is which is interesting, right? It's it's a it's a cycle, like you said. Hope hopefully um, will get will get changed over time. I mean, there's been progress. I mean, no doubt about it. But like you said, I think it's it's more complicated now. In yes. a way that yes. I didn't. It's more, yes, yes, it's more yes. complicated. Oh, yeah, it it's more complicated, and yes, it's it's wonderful. Uh, one and a half, two kids, feel free to self-identify however they wanted. That to me was progress, um, and I think they are very much at ease with themselves. But I do not appreciate the world at large showing my son literally how they really see him. 
and the shock of that and the trauma of that of him saying what it took him back to like double consciousness, you know, with Du Bois, you know, I knew double consciousness in order to survive during my generation. And here's a kid, you know, open, inclusive. And all of a sudden the world still imposes, well, you know what? We're teaching you. You still have to remember how I see you can mean your life or not. That is cruel. We're taking a break from this episode to share information about another podcast that I'd like to listen to, Generation.Mom, hosted by moms Laura Schulte and Jen Rout. Laura and Jen candidly discuss real-life experience as modern-day moms and highlight women who create space for both their individual identity and being a mom. The podcast is designed to guide, connect, and support women navigating modern-day motherhood. Stay tuned as What is Black will be featuring them during a bonus episode airing later this month. You can check out Generation.Mom anywhere you listen to podcasts and on Instagram at Generation.Mom. So so let's let's get into that a little bit. I wanted to um, discuss some scenes with you, um, again, because the book also, t- also deals on trauma. <laughs> Unfortunately, right, because of Dante's experiences. So I wanted to touch base about a scene on pages 34 through 35 where Dante's reflecting on the words black brother and black brother after experiencing um, the arrest. And, and, and he's also he's sort of, you know, um, re- reflecting back. And in this scene, he's hearing some sirens and fearing that he'll be arrested. So, again, this scene made me very emotional. Right. And realizing he's coming to terms about how others see him and that he might and they might criminalize him for being a black young man. And I wanted to to talk with you a little bit about that scene and how it was for you to write it. Well maybe we could maybe I don't know if you if you have your book open. Yeah maybe I do. we could we could read a little bit of um read a read a little bit of it starting from maybe at the beginning of page thirty four, the I face forward. Oh, sure. He, and he actually is the term black brother, black brother is the chant that they use to bully him. And that chant stays with him psychologically. And so he can hear it even though no one's there. I face forward. Black brother, black brother. Black brother is all middle field prep can see. Black brother is all middle field prep can see. Then there's me. Skin color is just a part of me. I squat right on the sidewalk, feeling crazy, overcome. It hurts to think for Alan, a kid like me, my inside self doesn't matter. I panic. I've got to stand. Someone might call the police. Black brother, words are carried by the wind. No one else but me can hear it. My mind is blown. Alan wanted other students to see only my blackness, see it as a stain. I remember Alan's contorted, electrified face yelling at me outside the police car. Like I conjured it, a squad car turns the corner. Turning too fast toward home, I slip. My gloved hand lands on ice. I stagger up. The patrol car slows. My heart races. Two officers stare. I push my hood away from my face. Let them see me. Let them know I've nothing to hide. Sirens blare. 
I freeze. Red and blue lights flash. My heart beats fierce. I want to run faster than I've ever run before. But something horrible might happen. Exhaling, I close my eyes, waiting to be arrested. The siren's wail becomes more distant. Amazingly, the black and white speeds down the street. Crime must be elsewhere, or maybe not. Maybe it's another black kid walking on the street, on the road, just walking, trying to mind his own business like me. Mm, okay, I have my goosebumps again. Because again, so for me, even that the scene where he ha- he feels like he has to push his hood away from his face, right? That like got me, right? Because again, I had reminiscence of Trayvon Martin, right? I'm thinking, why is he even wearing a hoodie, right? There's sometimes like, I don't even want my kids to put their hoodie up. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. I know it's 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 terrifying, and I think there's one moment where Dante says, "Well, maybe I should just keep wearing the hoodie because if they think I'm a hug thug, you know, I can go ahead and just act like a thug." And and basically, he's a kid; he should wear whatever he wants to do, wants to wear. But yes, he pulls it back. So see me; I have nothing to hide. And if he were perhaps a white kid, he would never even have to worry about that. But, you know, but it's it's interesting. A part of me could feel from this book that I know this is not a real story. Right. But I could I could just sense from this if this character was real. I don't think anyone would have had to tell him that to take, you know, you know, in some ways it's kind of become like instinctual. Like I would think for him it would have been instinctual. You know what? I've heard what happened. Let me take this. Let me take this down. Yeah. It's just yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think that that sense of if you, you the idea of you want to do everything so you don't appear threatening. Mm-hmm. So that happens with somebody keeping their hands on the will, not reaching quickly for something in their shirt. That when you are a person who's subject to being victimized, it's in your best interest to know. And it might very well, I'm sure it's partially instinctual. Some of it you might get taught, but some of it has to be instinctual that you want to live and you want to survive. So it's just like you're saying, oh, see, I have nothing to hide. I'm visible. I'm, I'm not a threat to you. And that's sad because that's like we're living in not a civilized society, but we're always getting, ah. Uh, yeah, but but again, the the book there's so there's some there was there were a lot of other scenes, but I didn't want to give too much of the too much of the story away. But there was one scene I think I definitely resonated with me being a mom of two two black sons, and so there it's over a couple of pages, one sixteen and one nineteen, and it's a scene where Dante and Trey's mom is upset because she gets the she gets the phone call from the headmaster that both the both the sons um, are in trouble because they had some altercation with. Alan, you know, the tormentor and his teammates, the the fencers. And again, to me, like the mom's anger, right, kind of felt like she has to have this fine line right between her anger at the system, but at the same time, an admonishment to her kids to kind of like, why are you putting yourself in this position, right? This mm-hmm. just happened. And it's kind of, it's interesting, like, it's like, it's a duality that a, that a parent has to go through, right? You want to talk to them about protecting themselves, but at the same time, right, um, 
there's there there is a contradiction, and I think there is in one of that scenes, those scenes. I think that Dante talks about the contradiction. Um, and I was talking to my husband about this the other day, and and I was just wondering again, what were your thoughts about mm-hmm. writing that scene and kind of really diving into the mom's character and her 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 um, her response to what happened. Yeah, well, Jackie, that question was so like superb, and I had to like think about it myself. And I think uh, literarily, as well as in life, historical times that that black mothers have been really harsh in order to keep their kids safe. That idea that I'm going to be really harsh and angry at you and teach you how to behave so that you don't get in trouble with, you know, white folks. And one of the famous scenes that Richard Wright writes about where literally when, you know, he starts, he's having a fight with some white kids throwing rocks at one another. And she is so petrified that somebody's going to come and lynch her son that she really basically almost Murders. I mean, she beats the hell out of her own son. And so the son is getting the wrong message or the wrong kind of love. But all she's thinking is, I want to keep you safe. And I think the legacy of that in, in its less extreme form still exists with us today. Both of you also opens up the issue of, I might lose one son, but I don't want to lose two. And the idea that, and and that sounds terrible, but it's sort of like both of you, um, as though, you know, nobody wants to lose any son, but to feel that all of a sudden her entire family might possibly be wiped out, I think scares her. And yet there are also boys where their mother is saying, well, you've got to act a certain way that goes against their nature being boys and men. You know, well, what, well men are, are not supposed to be like, oh, yes, sir. Or, you know, you don't want them to be, you know, Uncle Tom kind of characters. You want them to be strong, vibrant, confident young men existing in the world. And Dante's able to see that, that mom's upset. Mom wanted me to sort of like lay low, but you know, men don't do that. And that's, that's another contradiction. So how does a young black man learn how to be a man when in fact being a man can get him killed? He has somebody who's loving him so much that's sort of like then chastising him, don't get yourself killed. That also gives a mixed message that it's better for you to simply survive than to be that sort of strong, ethical kind of person. How they manage it is, I think, challenging uh, by all means. And then there's two of you, and one of you should have been okay because you're lighter skinned, but you're in trouble too, and I might lose not only him, who I'm kind of now being trained to understand that he's at risk, not being, well, you know, society trains me that he's at risk all the time, but now I gotta worry about you too, uh, and you're supposed to have the, the privilege like your father has of light skin. It makes my head hurt. Yeah, that's a lot to kind of like, like you said, like psychologically kind of go through and then sort of break down. But it was so realistic because, you know, both my husband and I, you know, have had 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 like many discussions, maybe sometimes arguments about this when the kids were little. Right. You know, my, my husband was very much like you need to you need to stand up for yourself. But my first instinct was they have black boys. <laughs> okay, we need to rethink this strategy. Mm-hmm. And so so it's very so to me this was real. Like I've I've experienced this. Yeah. Um, it, yes. And I, I, I and there's a strong history of uh of women in African American literature that I think I must have uh 
also used and also what I felt personally. Yes. And then the last scene, because there's so there's so much richness here, so much to mine. Um, this part I loved. It, it so it's the it's a quote on page one eighty three. Dante's Dante's coach um, is giving him advice. Um, trying to think. at the very top. Yes, at the very top. Um, I was wondering if you could if you could read read the quote, which is basically the first sort of like the first that first sentence at the top, and just I just want to kind of break that down a little bit. Dante's coach, be you, stay confident, visible, even if others can't see you. I love when coach says that. Be you, and I can say that to the kids. Be you, mm-hmm. stay confident, visible even if others can't see you. And just the other day, I was with some school children, that people who don't see your glory, there's something wrong with them. You know, there is nothing wrong with you. You are beautiful just as you are. So always be you. Um, And I think that that is the message that they have to internalize to move forward to that next stage. Oh, I thought thought there was this was a great mantra. Like, okay, I can, I can use this as an adult, right? Cause there are times when you sort of, you don't feel seen. Yes. Right. And so you can kind of, kind of hide yourself. And like you said, right here, like you sort of get, he's given permission to be, to be who he is, right. Self-identify. That's how he identifies. It doesn't matter what other, how other people see you. How do you see yourself? Yes. Because I think, because I think there's also another sort of related quote. Um, there's a question coach asks, and I'm just paraphrasing the question. The coach asks something about if his so the so the mom is is doing her thing to kind of address redress the um, injustice that her son has, and in the discussion, I think the coach asks, so if if something happens, are you going to blame Alan or will Alan be responsible for it? So I, it was sort of like to me the question of who's responsible for your life. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. Do you have Do you have agency? In a way, right? Yeah, like, thank okay. you so much. Yes, you're you're absolutely right, and that's the that's what the journey is to have that agency to be who you are, and also to be strong enough. And maybe <laughs> even though we've we've been, I've been talking about bias and prejudice, maybe that that is still my message message for the young people to forget all that when push comes to shove. You are you and self-identify. And if we have a whole new generation of kids saying that that's the answer to bias and prejudice, they will change the world. It will be different for everybody. So I actually had had T-shirts made for the book for, for the students to give out. And it says heritage is lit. Everybody's heritage is exciting and wonderful, wonderful. You know, be, be you. And the reason why... Well, if you don't feel that you can be you, then you're going to look for somebody to blame. You're going to be racist, sexist, you know, anti-religion. You're going to be all the isms and be hateful in the world. But if you can be you and be confident and stand on your own two feet, you don't need to oppress anybody. You just let everybody else be. So children of America, the world, be you. Awesome. And I and I don't want to, to miss an, a, a very important character. I'll call it a character in the book, Fencing. So you mentioned um, Dumas earlier. 
Um, and, and so I want to talk a little bit about how you use, I thought you used fencing in the book as a metaphor for Dante's journey. And I wanted to know how you, one, how you decided on using fencing in the story and also as a way, as a bomb for, and a way of, you know, uh, Dante learning to adapt and, and kind of address some of the issues he was going through. You know, um, I actually knew about Alexander Dumas from a Smithsonian magazine that I probably read about 40 years ago. So I've always wanted to write a book about him. And I actually was going to write an adult historical novel, you know, with Dumas, the black man. And so it basically just sort of has been percolating. Um, but I... I found out about the American fencing team in Brazil most recently. The majority were African-Americans um, and Asian-American, and one of the trainers was actually sort of like a, a nephew-in-law who had also won medals as a epe fencer, and I got a chance to go visit the Peter Westbrook Foundation in New York City and had this whole sense of this new history of that and breaking barriers for young men and young women women of color, that they were, in fact, making history. But also fencing is, to me, the key word, a three-dimensional strategic sport. So it really is, even though you might be a part of a team, when you're on that mat, it's like the individual against the other individual. And you can be, don't have to be big or tall or, you know, wide or any of those things, but you essentially have to have the intellect the awareness of your opponent and their strengths and weaknesses in your own. So it's self-knowledge that helps you become a champion fencer, you know? And I just thought that that was a perfect metaphor. That, of course, Dante has to win, because by the end of the book, he is being himself, and he's being confident, and he gets to the point where he says, I'm the going to be the best, and I'm not going to do anything else to make myself more pleasant or to get other people to like me. I'm doing what I do in life for me because I want it. And I just love that about him. I like I like him too. But but I have to say I did think a little bit about, you know, referencing my own like my own um adolescence. I was thinking about karate kid and th- but that's what I loved, right? It's like or even like Rocky, right? Just coming back. I was good. Fight, fight, fight. Well, and my and my my, uh, my husband and I laugh because basically this is a sports book, mm-hmm. and I'm not a sports person at all. I, but I love sports movies, right? I just love them, uh, and so this is a departure for me because it has all the the social justice, racial issues that I deal with, the family issues, the cultural criticisms that I will put in. But it is also a sports book, and I'm hoping that young men and young women, but young men in particular, will feel empowered. Uh, But it was really interesting and wonderful getting to understand how sports can help elevate people. Um, So I love it. Now, did you try fencing yourself at all? Have you tried I did. son and daughter had done some fencing and my husband like the father in the story he had taken fencing in college but I've never tried I just I just admired it at a distance um you know but yes so I've never actually sort of well I mean you could say that I you know can do this and that and that 
in terms of really having a whole series of lessons and super commitment of time, I've I've never done done that. That's because I'm a bad sports person. <laughs> so I'm not really at all well coordinated. But I can see the beauty of the coordination. But what is so interesting is when you're fencing and you don't see the face and the mind and the eyes because it's behind the mask. But as a writer, rather than just writing about how the body moves, I had to try to also try to capture what went on behind the mask. And I love that sense of uncovering the person mm -hmm. that helps, that that demonstrated what was in them so that they could persevere and they could win. Yeah, so, but but again, you talk about the mask, right? So there's, there's a lot of depth and layers. Because now I'm thinking, it's like, oh, man, there's mask involved. Okay, so I can go deeper there. <laughs> oh, I know. And also then if you're a black boy, it's, I had one scene that never made it into the novel, where it's like he masked fought, and then he takes his mask off, and his opponent, when he realizes that this young black man has beat him, just, like, flips out, you know, and gets outraged. And that was, like, because... That's another issue, you know. We're supposed to be equal with our masks on, and the prejudice comes in when we take the masks off. Yeah, I like it. Yes, a lot of I depth. Like a lot of depth. Yeah. Lot of depth. So before, before, as we were starting to wind down a little bit, I wanted to ask a couple of quick-fire questions. So my first question is, if you could go anywhere in the world for your next vacation, where would it be? Well, I really want to go to the Galapagos. Uh, I want to see all those wonderful, wonderful uh, animals. Uh, I'm worried about what will happen with climate change. But I want to go back and see the sort of like the start of Darwin's theory. And I have a heart, a soft spot. I have a soft spot. I have a soft spot in my heart. I want to see the gorillas in Rwanda. Oh, wow. So Ellen DeGeneres, you should maybe talk with her. Because <laughs> I think oh. she has a preserve there. I think, really? I think oh, I, so. Oh, okay. yeah, I like Ellen DeGeneres. So she was very kind. I like her. Me too. So what three words best describe why you love to write? Uh, need. I have to do it. If I don't do it, I end up being just a miserable person. I would also say revelation. Uh, when I think of like Alvin Ailey's dance, revelations, every time I write a novel... I have revelations about the human spirit. I have revelations about myself. Um, and the other thing is, I think, um, expansive, um, that I really do feel that with each book, my heart and ability for compassion has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger, that I'm a better person. And last question is, why do our stories matter? We can go back to Lin-Manuel Miranda's Who Tells Your Story in Hamilton the Musical that if people don't learn to tell their own stories, all kinds of trials, tribulations, but also triumphs and, you know, uh, admirable things get, get lost. So we need to have our story told by our own culture, our own heritage, in order to remind us what is significant and important. If we keep waiting for people to tell our story, there are millions upon millions of people of color who will still think there isn't much rich history uh, that they that they own, when in fact, you know, most of American history, we've made enormous contributions, and we are more 
instrumental than many of our own kids know about, you know? Uh, so I wanted, I always tell about African American history. I always tell about the tradition. I always feel connected to the ancestors, you know? And that helps make me stronger. Thanks for joining us this week on What is Black Podcast. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And for more information about the podcast, our blogs, and subscribe to our upcoming newsletter, go to our website at whatisblack.co. As always, subscribe to the show to catch every new episode. And don't forget to leave us a review so we can continue to bring you fresh content. Until next time, thank you for listening.